Testament reading this morning is from the 40th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah, the opening five chapters, and we'll hear them this morning from the King James Version because of its uh, poetic nature and because of the familiarity of these words uh, through the composition of Frederick Handel. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Our New Testament reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Luke. In the third chapter, the opening six verses, Again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the height of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God, came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh so shall see the salvation of God. Here is this reading from God's holy word. One of the things that I think makes this passage from the third chapter of Luke interesting and unique is the way that the author has written. It's as if he's looking through a long lens back into time words of the great Hebrew prophet Isaiah again are invoked. It brings to my mind an image I saw recently of the Fab Four, which was the artwork of the newly released Beatles retrospective documentary called Get Back. The picture in promoting it was actually, it was a composite of two photos that were taken in an identical spot at a balcony railing more than six years apart. And through some clever, clever editing, the earlier image was made to look as if the group were standing precisely one story above themselves in the more recent image. They are that way further from the viewer, slightly smaller in frame as they had begun to recede in time. Hardly forgotten to 
anyone in my generation before, but perhaps dimmed a bit by the years. And such is the manner in which the words from the Hebrew Scriptures are pulled forth once again into soft focus and placed in the forefront of God's self-revelatory covenantal drama that's taking place here in the Gospel. The words which are used to describe the ministry of John the Baptist are those which were first circulated by a prophet over 500 years in a time when the kingdom of Judah was in a tough place, a time, a dark time in her history. The mighty powers and the principalities of her day had been exerting ever more influence on the Hebrews. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been conquered by the Assyrians, and in Isaiah's time, the Babylonians were now pressuring the southern kingdom. At least some of the people were looking to their God for deliverance. Perhaps it was that autobiographical. Perhaps it was Isaiah himself who was in those days the voice that was crying out in a seeming wilderness. But if it was, the response from on high must have been a bit disappointing to say the least. For the last bastions of the Hebrews would be overrun and most of the remnant that survived, the assault would be taken away to captivity hundreds of miles to the east. Similarly, in the days of the Baptists, the Jews also found themselves in a tough place, in a dark time in her long history. It was, we are told, in the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius from Rome, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, probably in Caesarea Philippi, and Herod, son of the great, was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, the three of them tetrarchs, together ruling over a loose confederation of Hebrews. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, who weren't there on account of merit, but were placed there as part of an oligarchy that ruled the religious establishment of the Hebrews at the time. Described in different terms, it was during a period of Roman occupation that had been going on for generations now, one in which seemed endless. There was no end in sight. No light at the end of yet another dark tunnel. While the Hebrews hoped for and dreamed of a day when they would again exercise self-rule, that day indeed seemed to be, well, no time soon. What they wanted was, in effect, that the same thing that most of us want, a better more just, less threatening, freer life for themselves and their children and their children's children. Because such wants as these are common to people of all different tribes and all different times, the ancient words of the Hebrew prophets can still speak to us in our context 
today, we are still looking forward and for that very same deliverance. Yes, the Jewish Messiah has come in fulfillment of the promise of the Baptist in the wilderness who himself had come in fulfillment of Isaiah's oracle and yet, and yet, we still find ourselves as the Hebrews who lived during and in the immediate aftermath of their Messiah found themselves wanting. They did not find in a Bethlehem stable the Christmas presents that was the only one that was on their list. Instead, what they found was a baby boy wrapped in swaddling clothes. There was no Judas Maccabee, no Bar Kokhba. They had come before and after to lead the fight for freedom, a fight which started off well, but eventually faltered. The vast majority of the people living in and around Jerusalem would have noticed nothing at all had changed for them on account of the fulfillment of a prophecy about the Messiah who was to be born for and to them. What good was a promise that all flesh would see the salvation of our God when life had gone on just as it had before Jesus had come? Perhaps there are quite a few who wonder this very same thing today. For honestly, it may be hard for the untrained eye to detect any change at all in the trajectory of human history that the division between B.C. and A.D. has rendered. Part of what makes this season of Advent so special, or at least out of the ordinary, is that it rekindles a sense in us, a sense of expectation, a sense of hope, Expectation that something better is about to happen. And hope, hope that change to the better will result. We yearn for freedom from so very many things that hold us captive. We sing about our longing for peace on earth and goodwill to men. These are all understandable wants and laudable goals to be sure. And we, well, most of us, have come to realize that achieving them by ourselves, of our own volition, has been and will continue to be just out of our reach. That the myth of human progress has been just that, a myth. And that we need to either resign ourselves to the fact that things will never, ever get better, or that we are in need of a little bit of help to make it so. In the meantime, the work that Jesus was sent to accomplish, the great cosmic change that needed to be wrought, has been done. Though perhaps less perceptible to us, the peacemaking and emancipation that was possible only through divine intervention has been accomplished. And the temporal peace and justice and freedom we dream of for and between people pale in comparison to the everlasting peace and justice and freedom that we have already attained through and with the Creator. 
the one who has made all such ideals and the mortals who dream them. And that, that is the gift that we began to unwrap on that first Christmas in Bethlehem. No longer must we endure the wages of sin. No longer are we bound by our circumstances or our past mistakes. No longer are we prisoners of our guilt and shame. No longer must we accede to death as having the final say. If all that seems a bit hard to grasp, that's probably, that's probably because it is hard to grasp. It's a bit like being gifted a present that wasn't on your list to St. Nick, but finding instead that he's provided you with something else, something that's beyond your wildest dreams, caught so off guard, many don't know how to react. And if I'm being honest, sometimes I don't know how to react. For if and when it begins to sink in, we find that this fulfillment of promise and prom prophecy, though provided freely to us as a present from God, packaged with its own special wrapping, has a little gift card attached to it. And that card includes an invitation. It's an invitation to gratitude and faithfulness. These are not by any means prerequisites to receiving such an offering, but rather suggestions for responding. When that message, that message of unmerited grace and undeserved mercy, compassion and love for us begins to set in, it can be a bit disorienting. No one, I mean no one, has ever or will ever treat us like this. And yet that's the way we are treated by God. And on the night of Christ's birth in Bethlehem, He tenderly brings us up from our valleys. He gently removes all our mountains. He fills all the potholes in our hearts and makes a narrow but straight path away. Who is the way, and the truth, and the life? The season of Advent is bringing us again to a time of celebrating this miraculous new birth. May it be a time when we contemplate what we are going to do with our own extraordinary new birth that we have been both blessed and entrusted with. May we revel in the glory of God's goodness and despair less of this world's failing. May we be reminded of all that God has already done for His people throughout the generations, beginning from the days when He first created and called them, called us, into a covenantal relationship. And may we see that the ongoing salvation of God is already at work around and even within us as we journey again together on the way Bethlehem. For that, we may truly say, thanks be to God.